Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Preview for the Partially Examined Life, Episode 262, Part 2, on the third essay of Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, What is the Meaning of Ascetic Ideals? Asceticism, referring to self-denial, self-control, which Nietzsche has identified as a strong force both for geniuses and leaders and crazy people, but also a guiding force in Judeo-Christian morality more broadly. The section from the second half of the discussion I'm going to play for you here is right at the beginning. It starts right where we left off in part one. It acts as a nice recap of Nietzsche's ethics and points toward what his critique of science is going to be. Seth, you were asking a question about its relationship to pre-Christian morality. It raises some questions about terminology and so forth for me, and we can connect it. So help me understand this. There is an ascetic ideal in pre-Christian times, right? Homer could not invent Achilles if he was Achilles, right? So Homer had to create some kind of ascetic distance to become the poet that he was. And the so-called master morality, I don't know if we still use that term, but that's what it used to be called, right? As Wes says, it's not the morality of resentment. It's what he thinks is a more positive expression of will. And then you get the Christian reversal of that with the morality of resentment, which says not strictly speaking, just the oppressors become the bad and the oppressed become the good, but the powerful are bad and the weak are good. The beautiful are bad and the ugly are good. It's a reversal across the board, not strictly speaking, just from the position of political power. But what I'm trying to understand is the master morality is not simply a morality that is forged outside of asceticism. Isn't it for him really a more pure and healthy morality with respect to the will to power? And is that what he's trying to return to? Or are we trying to move to a sort of a modern modification of that? I think it's pretty clear he's not asking us to return to that. And we kind of discussed this at the beginning, right? It's the way forward we'll have to do with the aesthetic and the gay science. And the there's some way forward through this. But to return to that, it's like saying, should we return to a Rousseauian state of nature? It's not really an option, and we would cease to be human beings. So the Rousseauian state of nature is also, it's pre-linguistic. And the problems that Nietzsche is describing are inherent in being human, the human, all too human. This is one of the reasons why I was characterizing the philosopher as having tripped us. It's not that it's not part of being human and part of, in fact, of our evolution, so to speak. To maybe even characterize the genealogy as an account of an evolution. It's that there is a tripping that happened that denies our full flourishing. We become less than what we are. So is the idea that, as we were saying, the ascetic ideal was still used in the self-discipline of, you know, say the Spartans. But in that case, it's a tool. I'm just trying to figure out if self-discipline can be itself limited, that it doesn't turn you into a, I mean, the, the Spartans as this pure warrior race, like this 
sounds just as awful as anything else. Excessive priest, maybe the fact that they're rejoicing in strength and the ascetic priest is not is on Nietzsche's counts positively on his rating system. It seems like we should be able to use self-discipline in moderation, right? Well, in fact, he refers to moderation. and He never once mentions the Spartans as in any way an epitome of warrior virtue, rightly understood and proper asceticism. And I think it's for all kinds of reasons, a, a problematic case. You know, what he's describing are broad psychological phenomena that I think, again, go along with being human, right? So to develop a conscience, for instance, to identify with the values and commandments of parents and of culture and that process, you know, those identifications are ways of developing a conscience and subjecting oneself to those values. And, you know, we can't think of ourselves as human without that. And and inevitably that involves the kind of suffering, you know, this is one of Freud's claims is that Freud has similar complaints about civilization. People can go back to that episode as well. But as Nietzsche and for Freud, this is just a byproduct of having to repress instincts. It's inevitable and it's inevitably going to make us miserable and sick in these various ways. And so, of course, you know, if you go back to the warrior who predates slave morality, supposedly, you know, the hypothetical, in order to think of them as human, we have to think that they've already been toddlers who said, no, you can't do this. No, you can't do that. They've already internalized the conscience. They're already capable of guilt. So we either have to treat it as kind of an ideal, as a hypothetical case that exists that Nietzsche is bringing out for the purposes of explanation, right? That can't really exist exactly. It really is more along a spectrum. So conscience develops over time and it can become more acute, right? It could become, as Nietzsche calls it, bad conscience. The other way to think of it is just to think about the way things work in honor societies, because Nietzsche mentions that here. There was a time, and there are still societies, that embrace revenge. They embrace certain concepts of justice that other parts of the world, or most of us contemporarily, we reject that. Our system of justice supplants that. It displaces that. So if you want to think about a sort of pre-ascetic morality, you could think about people who unabashedly, without any, any guilt about it, embrace honor and vengeance and all that stuff. Okay, let me rephrase then the question to try to get away from being hung up on returning to the past or, you know, some sort of nostalgic return to tradition. Is Nietzsche's solution to find our way out of ascetic morality of Rosentiment into a new ascetic morality without Rosentiment, or is it to find our way out of that to a morality without asceticism? Well, I think it's unclear, but the gay science suggests that he wants some sort of fusion. Ultimately, the solution is the same as for Freud, I think, which is sublimation. <laughs> that's the answer. <laughs> you sublimate. And I know it's kind of an ordinary idea, but that's the best, I think, of what Nietzsche has to offer. Otherwise, it's a hodgepodge of inconsistent stuff. And in some ways, in certain places, he's going to say, fuck the, I mean, there's nothing you can do for the herd except let the shepherds take care of them. And we just got to make sure that the great people are siloed off from that and aren't contaminated by that. So we need to find a way for society to make room for geniuses. So his elitism, you know, I think, which I think is kind of the weakest part of Nietzsche, we see a lot of that. But if we want a more ordinary, universalizable solution, I think we have to talk about sublimation. And Nietzsche in particular, you know, I think in the gay science where he's essentially talking about the fusion of our rational and instinctual trends in our natures, that's where you, I think, get the best account of it. 
So my take on this is that he is criticizing the ascetic ideal, and it's not just a matter of self-discipline. It's about a form of belief. So part of the way that this goes through is when he's criticizing, we haven't gotten into the sections yet, in the 20s here, where he's talking about science. And you might think that the response to all these religious zealots who are imprisoning us and turning morality on its head is scientific atheism. And it seems like his God is dead, you know, that he's taken as the poster child of this atheism. But he kind of has a, a similar critique of these scientific atheists that we've given that many people give of the so-called new atheists, if people want to listen to our episode on that, that they still have a very ascetic religious type attitude toward what they're trying to replace theism with. And that, you know, as we've said, this takes the form of this will to truth and that there's something self-denying and pretentious and hollow about that form of belief. The way I think we usually put it in talking about the new atheists is they have too much faith in reason, right? Whereas it's a typical Nietzschean move where you want to say, I realize you've gotten rid of, you know, like when he's critiquing morality, he's looking at somebody like Kant and saying, you've gotten rid of the divine command theory. You've gotten rid of the idea that God is at the center handing out laws, but your resulting morality, the whole social structure still is the one that was based on that theological picture. And so it's going to be the same thing with the form of ascetic belief that you are objecting to these priests who believe in this way, who self-negate themselves, and you end up just being a priest of science, a priest of atheism. And I think his solution is that we have to get rid of that infrastructure, which in this case, psychologically, is asceticism. We do have to dismantle asceticism. It's a critique of that. Let me just read here from section 24. That which constrains these men, however, this unconditional will to truth, is faith in the ascetic ideal itself, even if as an unconscious imperative. Don't be deceived about that. It is the faith in a metaphysical value, the absolute value of truth, sanctioned and guaranteed by this ideal alone. It stands or falls with this ideal. And then you get into the ways in which this faith in science affirms a faith in another world. He's actually quoting himself from the gay science, and it's a metaphysical faith. In 23, he has something that's very related. I think it's the first paragraph. Yeah, in the middle of the first paragraph. The aesthetic ideal expresses a will. Where is the opposing will that might express an opposing ideal? The aesthetic ideal has a goal. This goal is so universal that all the other interests of human existence seem, when compared with it, petty and narrow. It interprets epochs, nations, and men inexorably as with a view to this one goal. It permits no other interpretation, no other goal. It rejects, denies, affirms, and sanctions solely from the point of view of its interpretation. Has there ever been a system of interpretation more thoroughly thought through? It submits to no power. It believes in its own predominance over every other power, in its absolute superiority of rank over every other power. It believes that no power exists on earth that does not first have to receive meaning, a right to exist, a value as a tool of the ascetic ideal, as a way and means to its goal, to one goal. He's articulating, why is the ascetic ideal so successful? Yeah, and this is where he's setting us up for the transition to science. He's, exactly. The previous sections are on the priests taking care of the herd, which we should get back to when we're done with this. But 23 is the transitional section. And yeah, he sets up like the ascetic ideal is this formidable thing. And he's going to say, well, where is there something that opposes it? And then it seems like yeah. it's going to be science and atheism. Unfortunately, that doesn't work out. <laughs> 
Yeah. Even though he calls science the latest and noblest form of the aesthetic ideal. Like it's distilled into its pure, into, you know, that's the vodka that's been distilled over and over again. That's what science is to the aesthetic ideal. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support and sign up for membership either on our site or on patreon.com slash partiallyexaminelife. Thanks for listening. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.